Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 22nd, we are starting a new series here on Sharper Iron. It's called The Word is Trustworthy. This series will take us through three of St. Paul's letters that are collectively referred to as the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus are named after their recipients, two young pastors in the Christian church. The Apostle Paul writes these letters to give instruction concerning the life and doctrine of the congregations that these two faithful servants are given to serve. The pastoral epistles have much to say to those God has called into service in the office of the Holy Ministry, and they have much to say to all Christians God has called into his church. To kick off the series and the first epistle to the pastor Timothy, today we are studying 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Andy Wright. Pastor Wright serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. Pastor Wright, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thanks. It's great to be here studying God's word together. So, Pastor Wright, we're starting a new series today. It's going to go through the pastoral epistles. I gave a brief introduction there. What do we need to know about the pastoral epistles? Why are they called that? What's in them that distinguishes them from some of Paul's other writings? What do we need to know about the pastoral epistles that we get started in this series? Yeah, that's always a great question. And and the way that you summarized it was a very kind of, I think, just succinct way of just kind of us understanding that First and foremost, when we call them the pastoral epistles, it doesn't mean it's just for pastors. It's not like if we're, you know, a, a lay person in the church, we say First and Second Timothy and Titus go, whoops, well, I better skip those because I'm not a pastor, right? They're for the whole church of God, and, we, and we'll see that as we start, you know, diving into the text. Um, but they're called those pastoral epistles because there are kind of, you know, specific things relating to the office of the ministry, relating to the church as a whole, her structure, um, particular emphasis, too, on preaching and teaching. We really see that kind of come out. So there's some stylistic things that are different than, like we say, something like in Romans, you know, the very kind of organized and almost like a textbook-esque way of presenting the Christian faith, or even Galatians and Ephesians and things like that, um, which is, uh, in some points in church history, some people have even tried to argue that Paul didn't write these because they're so stylistically different in that regard. But, you know, it, it's, I mean, a lot of that stuff is debunked pretty easily. And the early church really, you know, saw these as being written by Paul. And, of course, we, we say that St. That Paul wrote these. Um, but uh, we, we have to look at kind of what are the issues in the context that's being at hand um, here with those. So, like, so the, the pastoral epistles in general, you know, kind of deal with those churchly preaching and teaching things in general. Um, one thing that I always find helpful kind of as uh, like an overview for different books of the Bible, and I use it a lot in uh, Bible studies here at St. John, is the Lutheran Bible Companion. And uh, I, I liked how they, they had this phrase about the pastoral letters. They said, they are Pauline barley bread, honest workman's food, rough and plain. Mm. And I thought that description was, was pretty interesting to kind of see that there's just a straightforwardness to it, kind of a clear 
and keen formulations of the truth. Um, and then how this really kind of the rubber hits the road when it comes to as a pastor, what you are to teach and uh, what then the, the accountability to that goes with, you know, the, the stewards of, of God's um, mysteries, those who preach the gospel and minister the sacraments as well. So, so yeah. I mean, that's a very helpful introduction to the pastoral epistles as a whole. And I know throughout this series, we'll have a chance to, to return to some of those thoughts. Today, we're also not only beginning this larger series, but particularly the book that's called First Timothy. It is named after the pastor, Timothy. It's written by Paul, as you've already laid out. In, in terms of introducing this particular epistle, I mean, I guess, well... We, we'll talk about this uh, probably in the next text, actually. Who's Paul? <laughs> I mean, that seems so obvious, but it's probably worth our time. You know, who's Paul? Who's Timothy? And and how does this epistle fit into what we know of Paul's ministry from the book of Acts? Right, yeah. Um, when we think of, you know, Paul, the as he'll kind of say, tell us here at the beginning, too, as an apostle, you know, we think of, you know, Saul of Tarsus, who was converted on the road to Damascus and became Paul. You know, went from this um, this great persecutor of the of Christians to this great defender of the faith, writing you know a, a great deal of the New Testament. You know, that's always it's always an amazing thing to think about when we when we hear you know Paul just articulate the the Christian faith in the the way that he does in his letters. That here is somebody who was you know held the held the cloaks of the people who stoned Saint Stephen in the Book of Acts, and now here is you know, su- suffering for the faith as well, you know, going on his missionary journeys, facing imprisonment, um, you know, so this was, uh, so when Paul writes this to, to Timothy, he's um, probably after his first imprisonment. So we're looking around, you know, 65 AD or so around there. And um, so Timothy then was a, one who went around with Paul on some of his missionary travels. Um, and uh, so uh, Timothy was a native of of Lystra, which is kind of modern day Turkey. So what we think about Timothy, he had a, a Gentile father and a Christian mother, one who raised him up in the faith. So he has a, a background in some of these things that he had been been taught. He wasn't totally just kind of, you know, some um, some pagan necessarily. So he was, he did have an upbringing in, in the Christian faith. And he has a connection also with the churches in Corinth and with the church in uh, Philippi. So Paul will mention him and those things, um, him going to Corinth, you know, being um, to be received in by the Philippians. So here then, um, the context of First Timothy, we're talking about uh, the church at Ephesus. So in the book of Acts, we think about Paul appointing the elders at the church of Ephesus. And, and Paul did a lot of uh, work there in Ephesus. And especially we think of like chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Acts. So Timothy then, um, when we are in First Timothy here, is serving as kind of a, an overseer of the church at Ephesus. And so then, and then he'll kind of address some of those kind of more um, oversight issues later with Timothy. But so, and Paul is kind of, um, he's delaying coming to Ephesus here um, that, you know, he, he'll speak of being in Macedonia or, or those things like that. So, so here's Timothy then, this, this guy who has uh, a kind of a mixed background of a Gentile father, a Christian mother, and then um, Paul, who he accompanied Paul on quite a few years of his missionary journeys. So an apostle and then a, a man who then had been called to be a pastor here at this church in Ephesus. And so even, you know, uh, traditionally he's thought of to be as a, a young, younger guy. And I think that's a fair assessment. 
And he's at least, you know, we'll see this kind of this younger, older relationship and the terms that they use kind of with a father-son relationship as well. And I think that's part of why we think of him as being younger. He's often t- he's seen of, you know, when you're a young pastor, you know, sometimes you get called a Timothy mm-hmm. or, or something like that. The, the St. Louis Seminary has, you know, the chapel of St. Titus and St. Timothy kind of us, almost like the patron saints of new pastors or young pastors or forming pastors. And it's always a, a nice connection with there as well. So those are kind of an overview of Paul and Timothy uh, of who we have before us. Right. So Paul is likely after his first imprisonment in Rome, which that's actually where <laughs> the book of Acts ends. That, this is one sure. of my, my weak points in my biblical history is, is how the epistles of Paul fit into the book of Acts. This is one that likely comes actually after the book of Acts. Paul has, <laughs> has not yet been imprisoned for the second time, the time that would lead then to his, his martyrdom. He's writing in between that. Timothy's there in Ephesus. Paul thinks he's not going to make it there. And so he's writing this letter to him. That's the the general overview. You've got the apostle Paul and his student, Timothy, who is serving as a pastor, a young pastor, likely, as you said. In terms of the content of First Timothy, what are some of, and again, we're, we're just looking at the first 11 verses, but just thinking in general sure. contours, what are some of the features of the content that we should be looking for as we go through this epistle over the next couple of days? Yeah, there's a lot of content, especially in First Timothy, that's kind of just interwoven and packed together. And um, and uh, so we see a lot of what it means to be, um, what it means to be in the Church of God, what it means to to hold fast to God's word and sound doctrine, and what does that mean? Sound doctrine over and above, you know, false teaching, and why is that important? Um, how is the church structured in the sense of um, why are all these terms used? Are they interchangeable, you know, what's the purpose of all of that? Um, And and really here at the beginning, too, that he'll kind of set the basis for is rightly understanding law and gospel and what that means for the Christian who is in the church of God and how salvation comes from the gospel, but what role does the law play in all of that as well and uh, this new life we have in Christ. So kind of all of those things are kind of going back and forth. And then once you get kind of later then into to first Timothy, especially like chapter three and stuff is where you start getting even like the qualifications of, you know, uh, of pastors, you know, of elders, and then he'll use the you know term deacons, you know, overseers or bishops, those, all those kind of things like that. So he'll emphasize those kind of things, which, um, you know, uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of things, but, you know, kind of then also to kind of what, what, um, why are those qualifications important for for who we are as the church and what purpose and function do then do these offices serve? Is it just for the sake of, so we're not a mess or is it actually for the sake of the gospel that these things exist as well? So those are kind of the main themes that we kind of see working, but especially then here at the beginning, this idea of, of God's sound word, his doctrine and part and parcel with that is understanding properly law and gospel. All right. So with that, that in place, those themes, particularly the matter of sound doctrine for our text today. Let's go ahead and read the text and begin to look at it. This again is 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love 
that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." That is 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. So, Pastor Wright, typical Pauline style here, typical for an epistle of his day, Paul gives an opening. He identifies himself as author. He identifies Timothy as his recipient. Sometimes I think we're tempted to skip over sections like this because we we know what's there, but it's always worth a, a closer look. So, the way Paul identifies himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. What are some of the key things that we see in the way that Paul identifies himself here that really fit into what he's doing in this epistle? Yeah, so kind of, um, you know, it's it's interesting, like, um, when you just start looking at the different terms that Paul uses in his introductory parts of his epistles, because I think you're spot on there when you say sometimes we just have a a tendency to kind of gloss over that, maybe that especially too, you know, when you think about being a pastor, oftentimes how do we begin our servant, you know, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, you know, along those things. And so we kind of almost kind of go into, okay, yeah, 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 that's greeting. Let's get into the meat of it. But, you know, in these first two verses, he's, he's saying a lot and really setting kind of before us uh, a lot of themes even in this letter. So, you know, looking at, so Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, when he sets out this notion of an apostle, is he just kind of throwing down his his cards and saying, well, look at me. I mean, I'm an apostle, you know, kind of a, a bragging right, so to speak. Well, no, we, we see that it's it's the Lord who has made him an apostle, but there's an authority that goes with that, too. Um, Martin Luther, he has some lectures on First Timothy that are really fun to read. And he uh, makes a point to show just the importance of um of the reason why it may even sound like boasting, but this calling that the it goes along with the doctrine that will be presented, that the authority which he is speaking and standing firm on is that of Christ himself. Um, Luther even makes the comment, the call is as significant as the doctrine for where there is a legitimate call, our Lord God does not let the word fail. Now, that's not to say that, um, so I mean, Luther will talk about like the papacy, for instance, in his day, that they had a legitimate call to, you know, to preach and teach, but yet they were still in error with things like that. But the point being that, listen, you know, um, there's an orderliness to this, and there's also an authority behind Christ when we say this. Like, you know, when when we, um, so, I mean, going back to like what we're preaching as pastors, why do we often say, you know, this greeting like Paul gives here? Because um, when we're preaching as pastors, we're, we're speaking on behalf of the Lord, which is a humbling thing, really. You know, to so it's it's rather than boasting even too, there's a humility that Paul puts forth. You know, he doesn't say an apostle because that's what I wanted to be, but it he actually wanted the opposite. He wanted to persecute the apostles, but by the command of our 
God and Savior, and of Jesus Christ. And notice what he says there, too. He says, our hope, not just my hope, not just your hope, and not just a hope, but our hope. There's a concreteness to this. It's not abstract. So here is an apostle of Christ Jesus, the same Lord who is our hope, right? And so already in that first verse, we have him kind of laying out all of this, you know, this this purpose of what it means to be speaking and teaching with God's authority and uh, who unites us and where we find our redemption, our hope in Christ. And addressing him as Timothy, my true child in the faith. So, you know, often, sometimes you'll hear people say, wait a minute, it doesn't ever talk about Paul being married and is, is this his kid, you know? Well, um, when, when we, sometimes it's, uh, well, well, we often will maybe use the phrase, you know, brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ. And it's not wrong sometimes for us to talk about a child in the faith or as pastors being spiritual fathers to people. Luther in the large catechism will, will talk about being fathers in office. When you think about you have a, a earthly father, um, you have fathers in kind of the country or the governmental realm, but also spiritual fathers too. So Timothy went along with Paul and Paul really um, taught him and, um, you know, was a part of this thing that he matured in the faith. So there is a a father-son relationship in terms of being not only in the Christian faith, but even kind of in this pastoral office thing too. Uh, as a pastor, you know, um, having like a good circuit visitor or just other mm. senior pastors to you in age or something like that, you look to them for advice and wisdom, you know, you trust their, when you, uh, you know, their, their counsel, you know, to kind of look to them almost like a father figure that, you know, hey, they, they've been through this, I'm going to, you know, regard him as, as such. So, um, but yeah, and then what grace, mercy, and peace, right, those words that undeserved, um, you know, undeserved of what God has done for us, um, coming from God, coming from Christ, who is our Lord. Yeah, there, there really is so much here, and I appreciate the way that you you indicate these titles that Paul gives, or really the title, the he's an apostle, that the sent one, and it's by the command. Mm-hmm. That's actually that's a a matter of humility, not of arrogance, which I think is the right. opposite of the way we've. And I'm not sure if it's our American context or if it's just a sinful matter, but it's it's opposite of the way that we would that when we start throwing out titles, we think that that must be some sort of arrogance. Rather, Paul is is actually saying, "No, I am not here. I'm not speaking of my own accord. This is the the authority that I've been given." I, I I'm reminded of you know when when it comes to this matter of what is what does arrogance look like? What is what does humility look like? And when our tendency to reverse them. One of the, the places that comes to my mind is in the hymn, Lord Jesus Christ with us abide. And I've got my Lutheran service book here. The way that it, it puts it in stanza five is restrain, O Lord, the human pride that seeks to thrust your truth aside. That, that it's actually pride that would just come on my own rather than coming in the authority that God has given. And that's Paul comes in that authority given by God. And it is similarly that pastors would would come today. So, so very well said there. The matter of of calling Timothy his child, I, I think, is one of those things that maybe as, as Lutherans we we shy away from that language. We're a bit confused by that language sometimes because it it may sound too a Roman Catholic to us. We're we're afraid of, uh, you know, Roman Catholics tend to call the the priest father so and so. And, and maybe we're we're afraid of that, but we need to hold on to the way the New Testament does speak of the the role of of here Paul as an apostle and serving as a father in the faith to Timothy, and and then 
the words grace, mercy, and peace. I mean, each one of those we could we could spend tons of time on. One one thing, and I don't know if you if you looked at this, Pastor Wright, or not. I briefly I, I glanced through the greetings that Paul gives in his epistles. And best as I could see, it is only to Timothy that he includes the word mercy. Every other place it's it's grace, grace to you and peace. But it but it's only to Timothy that he includes the word mercy. He doesn't do it to Titus. He doesn't do it to Philemon. He doesn't do it in any of his epistles, unless I missed one. It's possible that I did. But he uses the word mercy with with Timothy. And I'm not sure if there's any significance at all to that. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but I, I just, I, I found it interesting. There may not be any significance to it. Maybe there is. You brought out the, the undeserved nature of grace and mercy and peace. Why are these such key words for Paul to use as he opens, again, not just this epistle, other than mercy, but why why does he continually come to these terms as he, he begins his epistles? Um, well, I, I think kind of that goes to kind of what he, he just did in verse one and also what he'll do when he goes to um, kind of, uh, you know, beyond what we're looking at today in verse 12, when he when he talks about who uh, who has given him strength is Christ, that the the authority of the pastoral office is the authority of Christ. It's the authority of the word of God. And for him to kind of give this blessing of grace, mercy, and peace to Timothy, which going back to your comment, yeah, that, that's a, an interesting observation. I, I honestly didn't um, look at that, you know, the greetings when I was looking at this. Uh, off the, now you've sparked my interest. I'll have to look at that later. It's, it's an it's a interesting point. But, um, you know, that this undeserved nature, that it, it goes and... Um, it goes to, I think, kind of not only the nature of the Christian faith, but but also with the pastoral epistles in general, and and here with Timothy, and what is so much said in in his two epistles to Timothy that um, to understand the the pastoral office in this way of being undeserved, being something that's bigger than yourself, being something that God has placed it upon you, but yet God also is the one who has mercy on you because, you know, each day as a pastor, um, you know, you, uh, boy, there are many days that you, at the end of the night, you said, boy, I wish I would have said that differently. Right. I wish I would have, you know, those things yeah. like that. You sure need a lot of God's mercy as a pastor. And um, it goes back to that humility thing, too, as well, that it, it's the Lord's office of the ministry. It's not ours. You know, it's I mean, that's kind of the point, like why we dress the way that we do or why we dress, um, you know, wear vestments during a service so that it covers the man and Christ is proclaimed that it's not about Andy Wright. It's about um, Christ crucified, proclaimed to us. So I, I think that, you know, with that, that's that mercy is in particular really apropos here as he. Then we'll go later too in the qualifications of a of a pastor too to to not to to show that you know that um, we're not worthy of the things you know for which we pray you know to quote Luther in the small catechism but that we he would give them to us and we're not worthy of the office for which the Lord places upon us Paul was not worthy to be an apostle he says so he's chief of sinners Timothy's not worthy to be you know here uh, an overseer of the church at Ephesus but the Lord has called him as such you know and uh, Lord help us. <laughs> Indeed, I mean, and to see the the same the same greeting again, other than maybe the word mercy, but given sure. to the churches and to the the pastors, I think is a significant thing. Lest either the the congregation place the pastor on some sort of pedestal that that is not his, as if he's some sort of 
super Christian. He has he has less sin, which Paul's going to debunk in tomorrow's text concerning himself that that he is the chief of sinners. That that the undeserved grace and peace that's been spoken to all of these Christian congregations that he's written to already that is needed by the pastors as well. And and it is received by Paul himself. It's a, it's a very important point. Now, and we've got just a couple minutes here before the break, Pastor Wright, but we can get started here then on the, as the, what I'd call more the body of the letter gets started. Paul says in verse three, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Oh, there, there's so much there to talk about. What do we, what do we want to talk about first? Let's start with Paul's urging or his encouraging, maybe it's just the general way into, we'll pick that up on this side and then the other side we'll say, well, what is he urging? So what, what's the, what's the importance of this key term urging or encouraging as we'll see it elsewhere? The word urging there is, is a common word used in the new Testament. And the word in Greek um, is, comes from the word parakaleo. Now something kind of should stand out to us. And when we think of that, we think of like, you know, paraclete, we think of calling alongside, we think of those kind of things. And it's used in different places. Um, even in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, Paul talks about being comforted um, by the coming of Titus. And that word that the ESV translated as comforted is, here's this urging there. So it kind of gets nuanced in different ways, but we have that call word in there as well. But so this this urging is, is in a fatherly way, kind of picking up of what he said here too. He's... Um, you know, that uh, he's he's giving him very serious things to deal with, but he's also encouraging him along the way with this. You know, even as the Holy Spirit has called him to this office and in he, he has this word of God entrusted to him, that um, there is a um, kind of like a father speaking to a son about what his duty is. Mm. You know, come on, you know, this is this is who you are. This is, we know you can do this. We know that you have the skills to do this. And this is, you're not alone as you're going about this task. Mm. So in that word urge, there's just so much, but it's a, it's a very Pauline word too. It's used often. Ephesians uses it quite often. Um, mm. But uh, this, so, you know, urge, encourage, even, you know, sometimes comfort, all those kind of things like that. Um, and so he's going to need that urging and encouragement, you know, kind of almost like a, you know, uh, a, a, a shove and uh, we got your back at the same time, almost, so to speak, as he's going to have to address these things. I mean, w- especially when you're a young pastor, like, and you get to a congregation or something like that. And, you know, that first time you have to speak those harsh words to somebody, right? But if you didn't care about them, you wouldn't do it. And, uh, or even too, that, you know, there's solace to lay your head down at night, knowing that, you know, the Lord is faithful and he will see you through it, even if it's something that's a hard word to speak. You know, as a parent, I'm a father. I, I have uh, four daughters and a, a newborn son. And, um, you know, you, you have to urge your kids a lot, <laughs> but you encourage them along with it, too. So whenever God, you know, urges us he, or admonishes us, he also instructs and comforts, too, in those things. Um, but these different people, he never names them, you know, charge certain persons. And some of Paul's letters, he'll just flat out name false teachers, you know, which I you always don't want to be that guy, right? You know, forever, <laughs> remember. <laughs> yeah. But um, but uh, so he'll kind of get into a little bit later, like what exactly is that going on? But, you know, so that to to charge or to address these these people who are teaching different doctrine and that word for for different doctrine here, too, or is a. Uh, 
It's only used in two places in the New Testament, and both of them are in First Timothy. Hmm. <laughs> so that it's a heterodidaska leo, so like heterodoxy kind of, right? Hmm. Um, right. And, so and, that, and Pastor, right, yeah. let's let's go ahead. We're we're coming up against our break. We'll we'll pick sure. more of that stuff up on the other side, but just to see how, how Paul, in writing a pastoral epistle, serves as a pastor here himself, being that encourager, speaking as a father to his spiritual child. Timothy, you're listening to Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 22nd. We're looking at 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. We've got Pastor Andy Wright with us. He serves at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. Pastor Wright, prior to the break, we were talking about Paul's urging, his encouraging of the young pastor Timothy. Paul serving as a pastor to him, giving him that fatherly push, that encouragement to do this important task that he's been given. And the charge that he gives is what we were beginning to talk about. Paul is concerned with these certain persons, they're not named here, who are teaching some sort of different doctrine. And and he even gives us a bit of explanation, although it may not be entirely clear from the words that, at least as, as we see them, he says, he says that they would not teach or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we've got these these false teachers who are apparently there in Ephesus or causing trouble in Ephesus. And Paul tells Timothy, make sure they're not teaching any different doctrine, which is, as you said, a unique term to, to this letter. And he, he brings up the idea of myths, endless genealogies. What what are what's Paul talking about? Do we have any idea of what the false teaching that's going on is is from what Paul says here? That word myth is an interesting thing that we see in the New Testament. I mean, a very Greek thing. Oftentimes, um, you know, when we when we think of myth, we might think of maybe Greek mythology. You know, those those things with you know the the polytheism with you know Zeus and all those kind of things like that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case here. Um, you know, he, uh, Peter will talk about um, following cleverly devised myths, you know, and having the sure prophetic word um, over and above those things. And I think if we kind of look at just this whole section, even specifically verses three through through seven, that we can kind of see myths in a way of anything. And Luther picks up on this in his lectures on First Timothy, that anything which is that false doctrine or different doctrine you know, that it's speaking to that goes away from God's word is in a sense myth. It's a kind of a, a pseudo, um, you know, a, a pseudo truth. It's a false truth, a false thing like that. Um, Luther uses the example uh, of the enthusiast during his day. He talks about that being a myth of, of having these 
these false ideas about the word of God. Mm. Um, and then the endless genealogies, you know, it, what, what is exactly is that? Uh, I mean, there could be different things, but, um, you know, the, the Jews were often you know, trying to trace certain lines or, you know, they were very much about being a particular people. Think about even in the Gospels, um, we have Abraham as our father and Jesus, you know, says, I can, God can make uh, sons of Abraham from these stones. Um, you know, nowadays we think of like there are, especially, um, you know, there are some false religions that really get into genealogies too. It's not, this is not what Timothy is facing, but we have kind of a, kind of a, an example of, you look at like uh, Mormonism and their genealogies, how they really, you know, get into tracing some of these things back. And they're very uh, meticulous about those kind of things like that. But the point with Paul here then too, devoting thing, devoting ourselves to what is false or genealogies to try to prove our pedigree or, or those kind of things. And then what does he say then, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So what's the difference then between speculations and stewardship, those two S words there? Well, speculations, where do those rest and find their kind of ruminations? That's in our minds. Rather than if stewardship though, is you're t tending to something that doesn't belong to you, right? God's word is our great heritage. God's word is our treasure. We're stewards of that. We find our confidence, our trust, and God, that is by faith. Hmm. So he kind of makes really makes that contrast there. Yeah, that, that contrast, I think, is very important, regardless of, of whatever the particularities might have been for the myths and genealogies that were happening at that time. That difference between the speculation and the stewardship is the key. And even the way, the way you laid it out there takes us back to what we were saying about humility at the beginning. This is not, Paul's not there speaking. He's not writing based on his authority. He's based on the authority that's given to him. And so Timothy is there as pastor under that same authority to be a steward of the mysteries as Paul will say elsewhere when it comes to the pastoral office. Now, verse five seems really important. I mean, Paul, Paul lays out, you're going to talk about things that are very clear in verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This, I mean, the way that he, he states it, it seems like this is a really key part of what he's telling Timothy in this first section. Though I will say that as it comes off in English, some of these are a bit, they may seem a bit nebulous or, or very vague. You've got love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That can sound a bit vague, I think, in English, but I don't think Paul is being vague here at all. What is this aim of our charge that he lays out in verse five? Yeah, this is where, you know, it's kind of, you know, always, you know, you when you're in seminary or, or studying the Bible that, you know, a, a lot of what... um you know, biblical interpretation is a lot like real estate, location, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. context, context, context. And we can easily take this out of here and say our charge is love. It's kind of like, you know, like in First John, right? God is love. Well, how often has that been abused? It's not to say, of course, God is love. But what does that mean? You know, or the aim of our charge is love. What does that mean? Well, what is he talking about? And, and this is one of those things that, you know, so as if, if somebody were to say, you know, as a pastor, what is your, your, your job is to love for God, uh, love God's people, you know, and how do you do that? Well, I mean, how does a father love his children? Mm. He takes care of them, even if at times they are kicking and screaming in the process, you know? Um, 
So the aim of our charge is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, where does that come from? How does love come as a fruit that comes because so that it issues from those things? And this is this agape love. It's the word agape here that so it's a sacrificial, you know, thing. Um, so a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, gee, where, what are those terms often used with the Holy Scriptures? Right. So to be faithful to God's word and to, you know, to do this task that has been set before him, that Paul is charging him, urging him, encouraging Timothy to do, even if he must confront false teaching, that is a loving thing. And the charge of a pastor, um, you know, I, I, I went I did my MDiv and STM from Fort Wayne. And always on call night, we stand up and they, the president of the seminary reads that charge to us, you know, go forth and tend the flock of God, which, the whole, you know, those things like that. And I always think of that when I think of those, those charge, you know, that that um, you, you take that charge seriously of love, knowing that to have that faith in God's word and trust and confidence in it, like he had just spoken about, not in myths or, or in endless genealogies. A love for God's people is going to issue from that. You're going to, even if you know that you have to call somebody to repentance, you know that that is the loving thing to do. Or, you know, the, or to, you know, get up and, uh, you know, in the middle of night and go be with, you know, somebody who's dying, even if you're tired and you maybe don't want to do it, that is the loving thing to do, to give of yourself rather than to, uh, you know, put your needs first, because this is what God's word teaches us is love. And also it flows freely from that too, as a Christian too, uh, from a sincere faith, but that good conscience to know that having God's word gives me a clear conscience to speak words, which maybe will not be received well, because my conscience is clear, because God's word is clear. And we do have this tendency to separate these things from true doctrine, as if love Mm -hmm. or a pure heart or a good conscience or a sincere faith could come from within ourselves. But again, I think, I mean, that goes back to this matter of what is humility? What is arrogance? It it would be arrogant of me to think that I can produce the love or the pure heart or the good conscience or a sincere faith from within myself, because maybe I'm, I think I'm such a great preacher or I've got such a a charming personality perhaps, which I, I don't think I do, but, but be that as it may, I mean, where does that actually come from? It doesn't come from me. It comes from the sound doctrine, which is recorded in the word of God for us. And, and that very concrete reality we need there in verse five, particularly so that we don't lose the foundation so that we know where these things actually come from. They don't come from me. They come from the word of God. They come from the sound doctrine and we can't, we can't give that up. I mean, I don't know. This is probably worth a, a couple minutes here, Pastor Wright. Why Why is it that Paul is so, why is he so convinced that sound doctrine is a, a big deal? And, and why, hopefully, are pastors today convinced of the same? Yeah. Well, I think a, a sound doctrine saves people. Yes. I mean, um, and false doctrine is dangerous to our souls. I mean, it's that serious of a thing that he'll, and he'll bring that up later. You know, that, even as a pastor too, the, the sound doctrine that you preach, um, it uh, it uh, it saves not only your hearers but but yourself as well. You know, by hearing that word of God, and um, and so you know, I I have a I, I love doctrinal theology. It's it's a interest of mine and kind of what I've been studying for many years and still am studying. Um, and uh, it, it, we sometimes there's a, a knee jerk reaction to kind of think. Why do you want to make a big deal about certain things? And, 
And we can, you know, try to turn things into just an intellectual exercise or one up one another. Well, I can articulate the genus monostaticum better than you can, or, or I know that term even, or whatever <laughs> the case may be. But the whole purpose of why we take a stand, why we dig in our heels, why we have the fortitude to stand up, which is a very pastoral thing, by the way, to have that fortitude and that boldness to to insist on sound doctrine is because we know that Christ is proclaimed in this. And, um, you know, doctrine is a, it, it's a body. And the minute you start, you know, just kind of compromising or picking away at other things, at the end of the day, the proclamation of Christ is going to suffer and God's people are going to suffer for it. So sure, you know, are there times when I've said things that are not the most correct? Yeah, but and that's where, you know, as God's people too, hold your pastors accountable, you know, but, and do so in love, both of these ways, you know, as pastors, you, you, when you mess up, you say, oh man, you know, guys, I misspoke. I'm sorry about that. This is what I should have said. And this is why it's important that we clarify things. Or as a, you know, I, I've had parishioners come up to me before and said, you said something in your, in your sermon, you said this, you know, just at, and like, oh yeah, oh boy, I, you know, I misspoke when I said that, or I shouldn't have, you know, those kind of, thank you for, you know, understanding that because what does that do with both of us too? Gee, it's almost like God is getting us back into his word with that too, you know, to, to see that that word dwells in us richly and, um, you know, kind of, to, I mean, the name of this program, Sharper Iron, iron sharpens iron with these things too as well, but, but sound doctrine, um, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's of utmost importance. It, it's, it, the confession of Christ is at stake and so are the, the salvation of souls because doctrine saves because Christ saves who is the content, substance, and very, you know, nature of what that doctrine is. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing out the image of doctrine as a, a body, that it's it's not sort of like, well, I can, what, well, what part of your body can you cut off and be okay? It's just kind of a silly question to ask, really. What, don't you want your whole body to be healthy? And, and similarly, don't you want all of what you say and believe about the Lord to be healthy and the place that that healthy doctrine comes from is in fact the word. And so hold on to it because as you said it, it saves because it gives you Christ and, and that's, that's the important. And so to be again, to, to insist on that is not arrogance, but it is humility to simply say, Lord, you have spoken. And my response is amen, not to tell you that you're wrong or, or that I know better, but simply to say amen to what you have said. That's what, what sound doctrine is. That's what, Paul right. is encouraging Timothy, and and hopefully that's what your pastor is encouraging you as well to to believe the truth. Why and, why and, wouldn't you want to? Exactly, and, and also too that goes back to the very beginning. It doesn't belong to us. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, it's it, God's word is ours, and it really is, and we do possess it. But at the same token, it's God's word, right? It's not ours to manipulate or to change or to speculate around, like he just said. Right. We're stewardship by God that is by faith. So as a pastor, um, you know, woe upon me if I if I put my own speculations into things, right? It, it should be thus says the Lord. So we insist on those things too because it, it's God's word. It's His word, not mine. You know, and so we we trust and we we don't tamper with, and we insist on what belongs to God. Mm. You know? Now, as Paul continues, and he, he starts getting a little more into, he, as you said, he, he starts by talking about this different doctrine, those who are devoting themselves to myths, genealogies. He gets to that aim of our charge that we've been looking at there in verse 5, and then he comes back to the idea of the false teachers again. And, mm -hmm. and, and we've got probably about 10 minutes here, and it seems that the the big thing that's going on is, is something surrounding the law. In verse 7, he says that those who've swerved and have wandered away, they're desiring to be 
teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying. And then he, he launches into a larger discussion of the law. I guess maybe the place to start, Pastor Wright, is well, when Paul talks about teachers of the law or understanding that the law is good, what does he what does he mean by the term the law here? Yeah, that's that's kind of the the big question on a lot of this. And um, you know, different writers have, have spoken about this text a lot. Um Johann Gehert um kind of talks about this at length and in, in, in terms of the moral law. And I think from the context, especially when he mentions uh, starting in verse, you know, um, nine and ten, you know, he lists those things like that. That we understand this understanding of the moral, the moral law. I mean, there is some uh, different notions. Like, of we think, like in Galatians, we have the you know different uses of the law as well, with like the ceremonial law and things like that, with like circumcision and the Judaizers and things. So there, I, there could be, you know, there's there's definitely some of that going on here as well. But um, understanding the right purpose of the law as he'll get into like in verse eight, he summarizes it. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So before, when he talks about these, um, these swerving, they kind of have missed the point of the law. And uh, I love that image too, swerving. I always think of, you know, like you, you know, you have a deer that jumps in front of you and you try to swerve out of the way. But, but here in the negative sense, it's kind of like, Oh boy, I'm not going to touch that one, you know, swerve Mm -hmm. around those things. But, um, but desiring to be teachers of the law. So, Okay, you want to be a teacher of the law. So, what is the law used lawfully? And so he gets into this then uh, of kind of showing and demonstrating what how the one uses the law lawfully. But first off, I think kind of a key thing, lest we kind of miss the point and us not use it lawfully, is in verse eight. We know that the law is what it's good. It's kalos. It's good. It's the same word that's you know kalos like the good shepherd. The law is good. And why is the law good? It's because it reveals God's will. It reflects, you know, God's um, God's righteousness, all of these things like that. Uh, there's so much, so many discussions of, you know, things about the law of God in the church today, and there has been for centuries, and there will continue to be for centuries. And um, sometimes it comes across, and maybe it's unintentional, and I think it probably is unintentional, but sometimes when we talk about the law, and its accusations, um, we, we sometimes think, oh, man, the law just, it's bad. It, it stinks, right? You know, like, look at the good I would do that I don't do. I mean, the law is, is bad. Well, where's the problem? The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the person who was condemned by the law, right? Um, you know, the, the murderer who was convicted of his crime doesn't then say, oh, man, you know, we, we don't say, oh, man, that law is bad for sending that murderer to jail or or worse, no, the murderer is the one who broke the law, which is good, that says don't murder somebody. Mm. You know, um, so here he talks about this and using the law lawfully then, like um, so as Christians then, when he's kind of laying this out that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, how he's talking about using the law lawfully, I, I think is is kind of and Luther observes this as well, and Gerhardt too, that it's um it's understanding that the chief and primary thing of the law is for us to not be justified by it. We do not are not justified by the law, and I think that's one of some of these false teachers are maybe trying to do is they're trying to say righteousness is found in the law of God, whereas he's saying no 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 the righteousness that avails before God is found in Christ and it's received in faith. So you're not going to find salvation and justification through the law. You're not using the law lawfully. 
Because to understand this, then look at the law, then you want to try to go down that road, but it's used for the lawless, the disobedient, ungodly and sinners, right? The unholy, the profane, and they list all these things like that, all these vile things, which are real sinful things, you know, lest we you know, just gloss over those things that, I mean, these are things, I mean, some of these things like men who practice uh, homosexualities or liars or perjurers. I mean, these are things that, you know, people try to, you know, rationalize or gloss over. No, these are wrong. They're sinful things. Do not continue in them. But so, um, so Luther talks about this then, you know, that, and, and Gerhardt says that it's not that we don't live without the law now as Christians. We do live with the law, but we understand how it's used lawfully. So, you know, we consider what the law requires of us. We see that God has redeemed us in Christ and freed us from the curse of the law. And uh, we confess our sins. Um, and that we also then would be zealous to practice that which is God-pleasing. Um, so th- this passage in in First Timothy is used in, it's used in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, in a couple of places, always showing with what God requires and the righteousness that he requires and that it, uh, our righteousness is not found in God's law. This passage is also used in places like the Formula of Concord on the third use of the law, you know, so that understanding what the law is. So he, um, that, that God's law for us as Christians, as people who are new creatures in Christ, that we have a new relationship to the law, that we're no longer under its burden and curse, but we are freed you know, to live according to God's commands, not for our justification, but in our sanctified life. So it does instruct us. We see even in here and how he uses this, that we see these are not God-pleasing things, you know, but we do uh, strive to live a new life. But part of that too is understanding that the law does not produce that new life. The law used rightly or the law used lawfully, um, it, it will always accuse us. And so it instructs us as well but the, the new heart, the new mind, the new spirit, those are produced by the gospel. They're a fruit of faith, kind of like you spoke about earlier and what you'll then be kind of then, uh, you know, get to the end here of our section as well. So that's kind of, a, I think, a summary of what he's talking about. So, you know, trying to find justification, righteousness, salvation through the law of God. That's not using it lawfully. But lest we forget, the law is good. Yeah, that's always a helpful reminder that the law is good, or that we sing in the hymn, "The law of God is good and wise." Is the, is the way that we sing, yeah. and, and that's that's always an important thing, lest we think that that somehow. It, and I think you said it very well that it's it's not that the law is bad. I'm bad. I'm the sinner, and and it's it's quite something you know, with with all these these vile things that Paul does list here. You know, he, he includes things in terms of like the fourth commandment, striking father and mother. Uh, He includes lying, things that that maybe we wouldn't put on the same level as murdering or sexual immorality or homosexuality. He he puts them there too, that that the law is always going to do that accusing. And I I think it's also just so so telling that the way that he concludes or or puts the et cetera on that that list is whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I mean, you know, we were talking about sound doctrine and the importance of it earlier. And, and sometimes I, I think we don't, we don't always realize that very practical nature of sound doctrine. I mean, I think most people would read this list and yeah, those are bad things. We shouldn't do them. Well, how do we know that we shouldn't do them? It's because we have sound doctrine and, and, and the importance mm-hmm. of sound doctrine is it's a very practical thing. Now, now, lest we, we, we end on a, a rather sour note, I suppose, although, again, law is good. The law is good. <laughs> Verse 11 does 
Paul now does speak of the gospel here in verse 11. And we've got about three minutes here, Pastor Wright. He says, it's one long sentence, isn't it? It's hard to to keep going here in English. (laughs) In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. As we as we wrap up this morning, uh, how does how does Paul use this? How does he bring up the gospel? Uh, leave us with with the good news, Pastor Wright. Yeah, I, I, it's almost kind of becomes full circle back to that beginning when he talks about Paul, an apostle of you know uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Verse eleven comes back to that in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which which I have been entrusted. So here's Paul then, who he's starting to lay down, you know, what exactly is going on. Um, He's giving this charge to Timothy, but it's all in accordance with what is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That is the gospel of Christ, that sinners are righteous on account of Jesus, who has perfectly lived according to God's law who has suffered under God's wrath in our place and made atonement for our sin. This is what we have been entrusted with, um, who has risen for our justification. We know that we stand righteous before the heavenly throne of God and our heirs of eternal life. That's what is bigger than Paul, what's bigger than Timothy, what he's been entrusted with him. But thanks be to God, you know, this is the glory of God, which has been presented, which is preaching, which is teaching, which is what is, you know, overflowing in everything in this letter, kind of the whole purpose of this. So all of this is, you know, the sound doctrine, which is then in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And so the the task of the pastor is, that's what he's been entrusted with. That's what he holds to. That's what he preaches and teaches. And as God's people, you know, in the church, as both preachers and hearers, this is our hope, as Paul said in verse one, our hope of Christ Jesus, our hope in Christ Jesus. Pastor Andy Wright is the pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa, helping us today with 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Wright, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Your pastor cares about sound doctrine because he cares about you. He wants you to have the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. And so you care about true doctrine as well, healthy doctrine, not diseased doctrine so that you can have that hope so that your fellow Christians can have that hope in Christ. And so that hope in Christ may sound forth to others who need the salvation that he brings. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.